This podcast originally aired in June 2013. This is the Nature Pastcast, each month raiding nature's archive and looking at key moments in science. In this show, it's back to the 1870s as society came face to face with its animal relatives. Nature, a weekly illustrated journal of science, Thursday, June 29th, 1876. Notes, page 200. During last week, a young living male gorilla was seen at Liverpool for a few days on its way to Hull, and thence to Germany. It had been brought from the west coast of Africa by the German African Society's expedition and measured three feet in height. This is the second specimen of a gorilla which has, with certainty, been seen living in this country. The first, 20 years ago, was mistaken for a chimpanzee. I think it's fair to say that, at the time, all of Europe was in a kind of gorilla fever. There was a real fascination with um, primates, particularly the gorilla, because at that time, the gorilla was considered to be man's closest relative in the animal kingdom. My name is Oliver Hochadl. I'm a historian of science. And among my case studies is the history of the 19th century zoo. My name is Monty Real, and I'm the author of Between Man and Beast. It's a book about the discovery of the gorilla in the 1850s and 60s. Today, we know, for example, a chimpanzee genetically is, uh, shares more in common with humans than a gorilla. But at that time, based on um, studies of the bone structure, generally scientists agreed that the gorilla was the closest relative. And it was a new animal. It had been just very recently discovered. In 1847, the first gorilla skull had been collected and identified. Paul Duchayu, the explorer who was the first one to really describe gorillas in the wild. Um, he encountered them during expeditions that he undertook first in the late 1850s. He described them as almost like monsters. Strong and, and powerful with this wild roar. So it really kind of titillated the imagination. But no one has ever seen it, at least in Europe. So people, nations, zoos, entrepreneurs are trying to get their hands on a live gorilla. And that interest drove some people to do some pretty incredible things. In the United States, for example, P.T. Barnum, the famous showman, in 1860, took out an advertisement saying that he was displaying an quote-unquote animal that he called the What Is It? Barnum's Museum, unprecedented success, delighted audiences, 5,000 people daily. Among the curiosities, the celebrated, what is it? Pronounced by so many people to be the connecting link between man and monkey. It was really a, a hoax and quite a cruel hoax. Incredible as it seems today, he actually purchased a human being. It was a microcephalic man who had walked with his stoop and had a, a large-shaped head that was kind of unique to the, to the viewers of his expo at the time. 
And Barnum essentially dressed him up in a monkey suit and put him on display. They were going to these extremes to try to convince people that they had a gorilla to exploit this interest and fascination that the public had. There were all sorts of popular culture um, reverberations when the gorilla sort of hit the scene. There were novels that were written. There were plays that were staged, musicals. There was even a short-lived dance craze called the Gorilla Quadrille. My name it is Gorilla and by that you plainly see By birth I am from Africa but you can't get hold of me I love her, uh, I sing do-da, ha-ha, do-da, ha-ha I'm the wonderful gorilla whom you've heard of but not seen It doesn't really surprise me that Nature would have been interested in this because a lot of the scientific journals of that time and a lot of the scientists of that time were sort of intimately involved in following these um, developments of specimens arriving. The gorilla had been brought from the west coast of Africa by the German African Society's expedition and measured three feet in height. A German expedition that starts in about 1873-1874 has high floating ideas about exploring Western Africa. They were trying to explore the geography. There was even talk of crossing Africa, which was entirely a delusion. And they more or less completely fail. They can't achieve any of their goals. And rather by coincidence, one of the members of the German expedition, a physician by the name of Julius Falkenstein, receives a present from a Portuguese colleague because he had helped him, uh, he treated him for free. And all of a sudden, what was what looked like a huge failure, a lot of money spent for nothing, might actually turn out to be, to be a huge success. When they set sail in May, June 1876, they were quite worried that the gorilla would not survive the journey, as it happened with all the gorillas before. And for that very reason, they hadn't even told their German superiors about their acquisition. They were traveling with a sort of a little menagerie on board uh, that includes antelopes, all kinds of birds... The little gorilla was actually allowed quite some freedom. He had his own bed. He could actually move freely on the ship. They had uh, put up towels so he could he could swing around. So from the reports we have, it seems the gorilla had actually uh, a fine time on that voyage. And he survived. And on June 24, 1876, the ship came into the harbor of Liverpool. When they came to Liverpool and stayed there for a couple of days in a hotel, word went around. The hotel was kind of beleaguered. Uh, people were strolling around the hotel trying to catch a glimpse. At this time, the evolution debate was very much evolving itself. So there were lots of gaps in knowledge. 
and the gorilla was wide open to misinterpretation. The gorilla instantly became the face of the evolution debate. And one person who had a lot to do with that was Richard Owen, who sort of seized on the gorilla and seized on Paul Duchayu's specimens as a way to try to prove Darwin's theory of natural selection wrong. Owen's theory was that the gorilla could prove his idea that humans and the higher apes could not be related, that the differences in their brain structure specifically were too great to be explained by uh, the slow workings of natural selection. He was famously opposed in making that argument by T.H. Huxley. Huxley believed that the differences between gorillas and humans were not that great, and that the difference between man and a gorilla was less severe than the differences between a gorilla and lower apes, for example, lower, lower primates. Huxley defended Darwinism and basically argued that these specimens could not disprove the theory. And those two kind of battled, using the gorilla as kind of the centerpiece of their battle over Darwinism. Then Huxley and Owen, with rivalry glowing, with pen and ink, rush to the scratch. Tis brain versus brain, till one of them slain, by Jove it will be a good match. Says Owen, you can see the brain of a chimpanzee is always exceedingly small. With the hindermost horn of extremity shorn and no hippocampus at all. Next Huxley replies that Owen, he lies and garbles his Latin quotation. That his facts are not new, his mistakes are not few, detrimental to his reputation. A few days after they had come to Liverpool, the German expedition took another boat that would bring them to Hamburg. At that stage, it was not clear where this young gorilla, Mpungu, as the gorilla was called, this marvelous acquisition, would end up. The zoo in, in Hamburg tried everything in a kind of a bidding war to, to get hold of that gorilla. But after a few days in, in Hamburg, the expedition by train went to Berlin. Nature, July 13th, 1876. The living gorilla, which we referred to a fortnight ago as being at Liverpool, after travelling from Hull to Hamburg, was forwarded to Berlin in the aquarium of which city we believe it is to be deposited. The aquarium was in fact an indoor zoo founded in the late 1860s. We have reports about long queues outside outside the aquarium with all the prehistory and the idea of this 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 violent beast able to to kill indigenous people. This is the image people had in mind 
when they were talking about the gorilla. What happens? Mpungu is at that time about two years old. He is tiny and he is cute. Small gorillas do not have uh, the sagittal crest yet on their on their skull. They will look quite different to older gorillas and far more human. The way they were behaving, interacting, for example, Pungu had had a little dog he played with in his cage in, in the aquarium. So, in other words, uh, it did not meet at all the expectations of a, of a wild, ferocious beast. November 22, 1877. The Berlin Aquarium suffered, on November 13th, the loss of what was certainly, from a scientific and from a financial standpoint, the most valuable zoological specimen in Europe, viz. the famous gorilla Pongo, whose human-like form and playful antics became so familiar to Londoners during the in past summer. In November 1877, that is about 14, 15 months after his arrival, in Berlin, uh, suddenly Pungu dies. There are different theories. It might just have been some kind of diarrhea. Another interpretation is that it was some kind of tuberculosis. The loss to the Berlin Aquarium is no small one, as it had lately refused an offer of £2,500 for the animal. Not less severe is the loss to the scientific public. But as soon as he's... Well, already the day he dies... Um, He's being dissected in the in the Charité, the hospital in Berlin, and they have kind of all the the soft tissue, the brain, the guts, uh, in inverted commas, fresh. And they are particularly struck by by the brain that they find hard to tell apart from the brain of of a child. So the dissection reveals even more closely the close relationship between gorillas and, and humans. I would not say that it convinced people now of, of Darwinism. That would go too far. But it is it provides the zoo provides this and the apes there provide a medium for for uh, enlarging the idea, for putting it into into people's minds. By that time, the late nineteenth century Everybody understands what the ape theory means, some kind of rough version of, of evolutionary theory. It doesn't mean that they're all convinced or anything, but the idea is now firmly in place and has to be faced somehow. Nature, a weekly illustrated journal of science. London and New York. Macmillan and Co. My name it is Gorilla, and by that you plainly see. By birth I am from Africa, but you can't get hold of me. I love ha-ha, uh, uh, I sing do-da, ha-ha, do-da, ha-ha. I'm the wonderful Gorilla whom you've heard of but not seen. Ha-ha, ha-ha, ha-ha.
You've been listening to The Nature Pastcast, produced by me, Kerry Smith, and with contributions from historian Oliver Hochardel and author Monty Reel. The music you heard was the Gorilla Quadrille, composed in the 1860s by Charles Handel Marriott and performed by George Needham, Emily Renshaw and Lorna Brady from Simon Langton Boys' School in Kent. The poem about Owen and Huxley comes from the May 1861 edition of Punch. Sound effects were provided in part by LG at freesound.org and Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.com under a Creative Commons licence. Next month, nature deals with the impacts of World War II on science.